Open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 as we reach today the end of this chapter and a new section of sorts. We, uh, we live in what sometimes is called post-modernity. Uh, people are now wondering if that's even post-post-modernity or what comes next. But I, uh, I tend to think that we are uh, forever sort of trapped in modernity. Modernity is that era which most people associate with the rise of the 19th century and the early 20th century when people began to have a new sense of self-determination, a new sense of governance where technology and innovation would help us as a society to engage in advances by which we would finally free ourselves from all of the superstition that had shackled previous eras. People who, who embrace this with sort of the closing of colonialism and the rise of the industrial age thought that we who were moderns we're finally ready to surpass all of the sort of antiquated and, and uh, Victorian ideals that had led up to that time. Everything would be made new. It was, it was memorialized in poems, in songs, in written works of literature over and over and over again. Scientific advancement would move us beyond individual subjectivity. It would, uh, it would explain all of the mysteries of life. Rationalism would lift us out of the doldrums of, of uh, incapacity that we had known to a new rise of nations, urbanization, communication, information, all to unite us in a brave new world. Now, we... Uh, we have been through those eras and we have seen through a number of world wars and various conflicts that have come along with those technological advancements that we are far from the realization of the promises of modernity. And it's led consequently to post-modernity where that kind of confidence is mocked and that kind of belief in Pure rationalism is downplayed. But whether we want to admit it or not, we are, we are sort of irrevocably tied to rationalism. We are, in essence, a scientific and calculating society. I mean, we in America, probably more so than anyone that I'm aware of, and I've been to a number of places in the world, we more than anyone I'm aware of believe that we can, we can automate and we can figure out, we can robotize, we can do whatever we have to do to get everything down to, to uh, calculations and to, and to uh, uh, anticipate all contingencies. We can get everything down to a minute level of efficiency so that we can create a better society, a better world for ourselves. I read about it all the time in the newspapers, about all the entrepreneurs and all of their, 
all of their ideas and how all they're, they're going to figure out all of these things, all of these businesses, how they're going to improve all of these processes. They're going to make the world such a, a wonderful, better place. And we can't escape being impacted by all of that. We all used to wear a watch on our arm. Now we all have a clock in our pocket. We have buzzers and timers and calendars and all of that stuff that is all intended to keep us on track with whatever our plans and schemes and, and strategies are for improving, advancing our life. But we live in a society that believes that all of that stuff ultimately is lifting us out of the trajectory of all of the superstitions of previous eras. Well, against that man-centered, humanistic way of thinking comes a message that James has for us here at the end of this chapter. It is a, it is a section that sort of introduces, if you will, a new subject. You can see it in chapter 4, verse 13, with the words, Come now, which, by the way, James will repeat again in chapter 5, verse 1. It's kind of a blunt way of saying, pay attention to this, listen up, this is something important. It is indicating in sort of a, a formal literary way a shift in topic, a new subject, not completely unrelated to what has come before it, but a new emphasis, a new emphasis, or we might say a new application, but connected, if you will, by a same, by, by, by a common audience. James is writing this book and he's including a number of different messages, but he's obviously writing to the same group of people from beginning to end. They are, we might define them uh, at this point in our study of the book, we might define them as self-centered, self-sufficient, self-reliant people. We saw at the beginning of chapter 4, all of this self-reliance and self-absorption and self-focus has created conflict in their lives with people around them as they've become so self-consumed, they expect everyone else around them to be consumed with the same desires and goals that they have for themselves. It even, as James goes on to tell us, creates conflict with God because they unwittingly have befriended the world and its ways of thinking, and thus they have made themselves, James says, enemies of God. They are at enmity with Him. And beginning in verse 13, James continues his message to this group of people, with, but with a shifting application, attacking the same issue of their self-absorption, their self sort of focus, but, but shifting its application. Now he's going on the attack with an issue that is central to their self-centered worldview. It is this issue of what we might call presumption. Presumption or presuming, assuming the things about the future or orienting your life around the assumptions of what you think you may know. It is written to people who believe that they can calculate, manipulate, strategize, and create futures for themselves by their own ingenuity and cleverness. This is what James says here in verse 13. 
Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, this strikes right at the heart of our society. I mean, we are a planning people. We are a, we are a strategizing people. We have whole industries and books and consultants that are dedicated to this very thing of strategizing, of calculating, of figuring out the future, of coming up with plans. And you shouldn't read everything that James says here and conclude that God is necessarily opposed to planning in general. He tells us that we ought to be planners. In fact, Luke 14, Jesus asked, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see him begin to mock. So Jesus takes it as self-evident If you are engaged in architecture or construction or business or whatever it might be, that it ought to involve planning. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So God is certainly not opposed to planning, even careful planning, even diligent planning. He warns about the sluggard who fails to plan. He warns them to go and look at the ant who, he says, prepares his bread in the summer and gathers his food in the harvest. He wants them to go look at these tiny little planners to understand how they consider their resources and consider their challenges and consider their their schedules even, the seasons, the contingencies, the, the cost, everything that we would do as good sound business people. But what James is talking about here is not planning in and of itself. What he's talking about here is presumption. He's talking about a view of life, a view of your world, a view of your plans, which calculate all of those costs and all of those contingencies and everything going on and considers all of those challenges without ever considering the Lord. What James is talking about is a kind of planning that begins with the same self-centered worldview that characterized the very people he was talking about at the beginning of this chapter. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 2, he was talking about this kind of self-sufficiency that has not because it asks not, or the same kind of self-indulgent view that asks but asks wrongly in order to spend it on its own passions. These are people whose problem is not planning, it is presumption and self-absorption and self-sufficiency. And we need to understand the difference between these two things. Now, to that end, I think we could note here 
as James unfolds all this for us and understanding what he's talking about, we could note five antidotes that James is giving to us, to us five antidotes to un, uh, ungodly presumption that can help us to avoid that sin and to keep our hearts constantly reliant on God. Five antidotes to ungodly presumption that James lists for us here. And the first one is very clear in verses uh, 13, the beginning of verse 14. Admit your ignorance. Admit your ignorance. Admit what you do not know. And the key phrase is right there at the beginning of verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, there's no way you can know it. Because you are not like God. You are not omniscient. You don't know everything. You may imagine you know You may have plans, you have made plans, other people may have made plans, but there's no way that you can know what contingencies may come or what catastrophes may collide with your plans. There are any number of circumstances that could change between today and tomorrow that could impede whatever you are thinking. Those circumstances may make it on one hand, unwise for you to pursue whatever you were planning, or on the other hand, even impossible. And so what you need to do at the very outset is you need to acknowledge what you do not know. And James reminds you of that. You do, you do not know. Admit your ignorance. He addresses this to these merchants in verse 13. Come now, you who say to today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. These are people, they would gather up their resources and perhaps some goods and they would ship off to some trading post or some town and they would go and they would sell their goods and make profits and buy more goods and sell them and on and on in the process. And James uses this sort of present tense continuous voice here, you who are constantly saying, you who are always saying this, you people who are always planning, always strategizing, always thinking, all of these people, by the way, who are, who are primarily Jews, they had left the, the land of Palestine, they were the diaspora, and most of them had left Israel in pursuit of businesses, Jews said an early tradition, even back in those days, of being some of the best businessmen, some of the shrewdest businessmen on the planet. And so they would have been very familiar with this kind of thinking. And he describes what we might think of as a solid business plan. They have a schedule today or tomorrow. They have a market, such and such a town. They have a business cycle. We'll spend a year there. They had a program. We'll trade and make a profit. So it seems very clear in their minds what their purpose is. Everything figured out. And as I said, in and of itself, that's not bad. Those are the basics which go into every business, every organization. I would venture to say that no successful business could operate with that, that kind of basic planning. It is essential if you're going to manage a business or if you're going to be what we might call a good steward in business. In fact, you may remember in Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable of a dishonest manager and his boss becomes dissatisfied with his, with his operations. And so he, he tells the guy that he's going to fire him 
In Luke 16, the man ponders what's he going to do now in his future. He's about to lose his job. He's about to lose his position. And he says this in Luke 16, 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to them, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master then commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So here's a guy, a dishonest guy, but he was a clever guy. And Jesus commends him, not of course because of his dishonesty, but because he was smart with the resources that he had available to him. He had a plan what to do with those resources to prepare for, his, for the future. Jesus is not opposed to being smart with the resources that you have available to you. In this particular case of this particular parable, his emphasis then was if you're going to have access to resources, you should make the best possible investments, which by definition are the ones with the greatest amount of return over the greatest period of time, Which, of course, would mean eternal investments, not temporal investments. So Jesus has no issue with thinking about the future and planning. It's not an issue of planning. It's an issue of of presuming. Or we might say it this way. It's not an issue for the book of James. It's not an issue of what these guys are saying. It's what they're not saying. There is no mention of God. There's no thought of God. And the point is that they're living their life. They're running their business. They're handling their affairs. They're basically doing their life the way that everyone else does their life. There is really no factor of God in the mix. They're making their plans as if God didn't exist. They are self-sufficient, self-assured, self-determining, self-confident, and self-absorbed. Their assumption is, like everyone else around them, like every, uh, every uh, school that they probably went to, every journal they've read, every book they've marked up, their assumption is that if they carry out their business plan and it is successful, it is all a reflection of their own brilliance, of their own diligence, uh, of their own cleverness. It's because they're smarter Then everyone else, they've figured everything out. They've cornered the market. They've beat the competition. They've worked harder. They've done whatever. No one could have done it as well as them. It all centers on them. It is so rare then. It is so rare to meet a businessman, a successful businessman, who basically says, you know, I... I don't really know. I mean, how often do you hear that? I mean, how how did you pull this off? I I don't really know. I mean, what are you going to do about the future? Well, I mean, I've got some plans, but I don't really know. I've got a strategy. 
But I could easily fail tomorrow as be successful because ultimately I don't control this. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I cannot anticipate all of the contingencies that are out there. I can't do it. There are so many businessmen who would not dare show that lack of confidence. They wouldn't dare tell you that they don't know what tomorrow will bring or what might be on the horizon. And how could you know? How could you know whether or not you will get your product to such and such a town, or whether or not you will have clients when you get there, or whether or not you will stay that long, or whether you'll even make a profit? And this is the point that James is trying to make. There are so many things that you do not know, so many factors that do not depend on your knowledge. And so you have to admit this. You remember the story Jesus told it in Luke 12 about a, a businessman, a farmer who had a successful uh, agricultural business and he, he built up storehouses and, and tried to lay away his gains. It says in Luke twelve sixteen, the land of the rich man was very productive. He began reasoning, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store all my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain, all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat drink and be merry. This is a guy who would appear to have everything figured out. He's got everything in store for many, many years to come. He's ready for every contingency, except for one, the fact that he would die that night. The fact that he wouldn't even be around tomorrow. He couldn't control those things. In fact, Jesus says, and who will spend what you have gained? And, and, and by implication, what are they going to do with it? Is it going to be consumed with the same kind of greed by those that you leave it to as what has driven your life? Everything this guy thought and his own self-reliance and his own self-absorption was not true. Throughout the story, it's I, my barns, my crops, what I did, I will do this, I will do that, I will say to my soul. There's no calculation at all of God. He sees everything that He has done, everything He has made, as the result of His own ingenuity, His own efforts, and He sees Himself ultimately in control of the future. And he believes this is ultimate security. God's never a part of any of it. For some people, people, this is really the whole scope of their life. They calculate things this way. They even are motivated by the same sort of take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is really what it's all about. I've, I've earned this. I've done this. I've achieved this. This is all about me. And so I'm going to enjoy this. But the fatal flaw in this man's reasoning is he never stopped to calculate what he didn't know. This very night, your soul, Jesus says, is required of you. 
It's, a, it's an accounting word. It's actually a word, I should say, for debt. It's like calling in a debt, like someone has loaned you something, and now you have to return it, pay it back, presumably with interest. In this case, it is your soul or your life. You haven't even calculated that your primary asset in your endeavors, which is your soul, has been loaned to you. Your very life, your very breath that you breathe has been given to you. And so the issue, obviously, in that parable is one of stewardship. You need to give an account of everything that's been entrusted to you, but it's also one of sovereignty. The things you have achieved, the things you've been given by God, they have come from Him, including your breath, including your life, and God can take them away at any moment. Of course, Jesus isn't even there condemning the idea of planning for the future, he's condemning, he's condemning the self-oriented life that is absorbed with his own reliance on self. So James is making the same point. You can't just draw up plans and run ahead with them and make all your calculations without an abiding awareness of how little you control the outcome. How little you know. How you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know how God will orchestrate circumstances. You don't know what doors He will open up and close, what opportunities He will provide. You don't know what will happen with your employees, with your clients, with anything. And so make plans, but don't make these plans without realizing that God must provide you with not only the breath and the health to carry them out, but God must provide you with the opportunities for success or even the pathway of failure if he so chooses. And so this is the basic antidote to presumption. Begin by admitting what you don't know. Begin by admitting your ignorance. And put your focus continually on dependence. Secondly, admit your brevity. Admit your brevity, which goes right along this second half of verse 14. For you are a mist that appears for a little while or a little time and then vanishes. So this goes right along with your ignorance. It has to do with the transient nature, the brevity of your life. James says you are an atmosphere. We get our word atmosphere from that. You are a mist like like the, the mist that appears on the hills and the valleys in the morning and so quickly is burned up by the middle of the day. That is how fragile and passing your life is. There's a brevity to it. A brevity. It's almost as soon as you begin to admire that mist, almost as soon as you even take notice of it and begin to take it in, it is gone. It's temporary and passing so quickly. This has been the, the starting point of godliness for so many saints through the ages. Moses in Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70 or if by reason of strength 80 and yet their span is but toil and trouble and soon they are gone and we fly away. Psalm 102, the psalmist says, my days pass away like smoke. 
Psalm 144, David says man is like a breath. His, his days are like a passing shadow. As my friend says, it's like the steam that comes off of your coffee in the morning. By the time you even notice it's there, it's gone. Another psalm, Psalm 39, David says, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Job 14, man is born of woman for a few days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. This has been the focus of godly saints throughout all the the ages. As soon as they have any kind of really spiritual awareness, they are immediately aware of how quickly they are passing away. In the words of Jim Elliott, God, I pray, light these idle sticks of my life that I might burn up for thee. Consume my life, God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. And he died at the age of 28, trying to reach Indians with the gospel. It's a full life, though. Thousands of people were launched to the mission field because of the influence of men like Jim Elliot. So James wants you to take a moment to consider the brevity. He, he, he wants you to understand that your life is a mist that appears just a little while and has vanished. You spend time with anyone who's lived 75, 80 years on this earth. You speak to them and those in that age of life, they'll tell you it feels like it has raced by. And James's point, of course, is you may not even have 80 years. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know. This, this is the antidote to your presumption is to, to develop this mentality of brevity. Foster this recognition and this consciousness of how quickly your life is passing. Thirdly, a third antidote to presumption in verse 15, accept the Lord's will. Accept the Lord's will. Or we might even say defer to the Lord's will. Acknowledge it, affirm it. As James writes, instead of drawing all this attention and putting all this focus on your plans, instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Recognize that God is personally, actively involved in the circumstances of your life, of your business, of your plans, of your endeavors. The successes and the failures are His to dole out. They are direct influences of Him. And so you and I ought to be marked by a constant commitment to recognizing the will of God. No matter what we've planned, no matter how we have strategized together, we have to acknowledge that the complexities of life are so far outside of our scope and our ability to control that we are always, always yielding ourselves to the Lord. And so we live in this constant state of awareness that nothing will take place that doesn't take place according to his sovereign decree. It's the same God-centered view that James has been telling us from the very beginning of the book, right? He started off by telling us about trials. If you're in trials, count it all joy, he says. They aren't 
They aren't by chance. They didn't just happen to you. Count it all joy, he says, when you meet these trials because you know they're, they're testing your faith. Or down in verse 12 of chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So God is putting you through this test and he will reward you. It's all by his design. Or in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he'll pass away. Once again, you see the brevity there, but you also see the decree of God. He has appointed whatever situation you're in. And then in verse 16, don't be deceived. My beloved brothers, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, he says. So over and over and over, James has been telling, this, telling us this already. He's emphasizing that God is at the center of your blessings and of your sufferings. He ordains them whether you're lowly or whether you're rich, and it has much less to do with you than you think. It has to do with Him. So, we acknowledge and we accept the fact that God's will is determinative in our life, in our plans, in our businesses, or whatever it might be. And we draw attention to that, like the Apostle Paul over and over again when he was talking about his own plans. He says to, to uh, the uh, uh, Corinthians, I will return to you if God wills, Acts 18.21 or 1 Corinthians 4.19. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, 1 Corinthians 16.7. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Because he understood what the scripture tell, tells us. Psalm 19. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but its purpose, excuse me, it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The purpose, the purpose of the Lord. Now, none of this means, what, what James is getting at, by the way, what we're really emphasizing here is not some sort of magical mantra that you sort of pronounce over everything to ward off the curses of God. This isn't some, this isn't some legalistic recitation that you have to do everywhere. Sometimes Paul himself, himself would speak about his plans without that kind of language. Romans 15, 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave Spain by way of you. 1 Corinthians 16, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. There's no language there about if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits. But the point isn't so much the words that are coming out of your mouth as much as it is the awareness in your heart that God is utterly in control. John Calvin writes here, no scruple ought to be entertained as though it were a sin to omit these particular words. For we read everywhere in Scripture that the holy servants of God spoke unconditionally of future things, and yet they had it as a principle fixed in their minds. 
that they could do nothing without the permission of God. This is what James is calling you to. Lose your self-absorption. Lose your sense of self-determination. Lay aside your self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Admit what you do not know. Admit what you cannot control. What you cannot determine. Humble yourself before God. Admit His sovereign purposes, even His sovereign goodness over your life. Over everything you do or everything you hope to do. He may give, He may take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I like the way Will Varner says it here. You refer to God's will, you defer to God's will, and then you prefer God's will. Particularly in this area of business or your plans or your desires. As James says, you have not because you ask not. Begin, first of all, by asking the Lord to superintend whatever your plans are. And then secondly, remember he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own, uh, uh, excuse me, your own passions. So, So first of all, you ask, but second of all, you commit your ways to the Lord, even your successes, understanding that it is He who will give it, and it is He who gives it as a stewardship. And so you make your plans, not only if the Lord wills, but according to the Lord's will. Not your own self-absorbed purposes, but His name, His kingdom, His glory. Now, that leads naturally to a fourth antidote to presumption, which James talks about in verse 16, which is basically abandon your boasting. Abandon your boasting. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, the word boast here, basically the word cachesis, literally means loud-mouthed. Or speaking loudly. In some cases, it's even used positively to speak about rejoicing loudly. It was used of, of uh, sort of these, these uh, heralds who would go out to, to market things and they would stand up and they would, they would loudly proclaim their product on a street corner. And so here it's picturing the arrogant, self-confident businessman who always likes to tell you his plans. He loves to talk about his successes. He loves to talk about himself. He makes much of himself, but not much of God. Much of himself, but not much of God. He's loud-mouthed about his accomplishments. And if you understand what James has been saying here, you realize that there is no place for that in the life of a believer. No place for that in the life of a godly planner, a godly businessman. It's not as if you are robotically chanting this mantra, if the Lord wills, but it is that you would never want anyone to ever think that any of the success that you have had would ever have come had it not been from the Lord. That's the point. So the bottom line is when you speak what you speak most loudly is glory to God. When you boast 
you boast of him. Listen, the bottom line is when you really believe that your success in your strategies, in your career, in your endeavors, when you really believe it's from the Lord, it will become evident. It'll come out of your speech. You'll be making much of Him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you're telling other people about what you have done or what you plan to do, you cannot help but speak of God because you are so aware that it is Him who is determining everything. And so, you make much of God and not of yourself. So you hear it in your speech. You hear it in your prayers. You even see it in the way you treat your employees and your clients, which, by the way, is what James gets to at the beginning of chapter 5, treating your employees certain ways because you know God is ultimately the one controlling. So, abandon your boasting, your loud mouth bragging about your plans. And then a final antidote, avoid defiance. Avoid defiance. He says it right there in verse 17. So, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. For him it's sin. Real simple. If you know to do this and do not do it, it's sin. If you know this is what God teaches and you still choose to draw all the attention to yourself, if you claim to be a Christian and you claim to know God and you claim to know that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, then you have no excuse but to bring all the glory to God. You cannot claim ignorance. If you don't know, if you haven't realized that all of your plans are in the Lord's hands, then you need to realize it. You need to understand Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. But if you already know that, and you already claim to know the Lord, and you claim to want to do his will and defer to his will and prefer his will, if you claim to understand God as your creator, your maker, and your sustainer, then to boast otherwise is evil. For you to make your plans and your strategies and make them out to be the reason for your success. That's sin. That is sin. For you to know that you ought to glorify God for all these things and for you not to do it, that is sin. For you to know that it is His will that has put you in the place where you are. It is His goodness. For you to know that every resource that you have has come from His hand. And for you to know that it is now your job to use it for His glory. For you to know all of that stuff and not to do it is clearly making you accountable before God. It is sin. It is evil, as he says in verse 16, for you to boast 
Because all such boasting, all such loud mouth, braggadocious, self-congratulatory, self-reliant, self-determining, self-absorbed speech is evil. For you to know this stuff and not to do it. For you to know this stuff and not to do it. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. God wants us to be ready for the future. God wants us to plan. He wants us to think through everything we can think through. He's given us stewardships for that purpose. He's put resources in your hand and He wants you to use them for His kingdom, for His namesake, for His glory. And He says, to whom much is given, much is required. And he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. He says all those things. But none of it, none of it, has ever been given to you so that you can boast in you. None of it has ever been given to you to give you the idea that you know anything about tomorrow. It's all in His hands. So, refer to God's will. Defer to God's will. And prefer God's will. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. If you're here this morning and the Lord has been working in your heart and you know that you have been living at enmity with Him, then we want to speak to you. We'd love to be able to share with you how Christ forgives, how He receives those who humble themselves and repent. Father, we're grateful for this reminder, for this word. It is something that we need. Forgive us, O Lord. For all of our loudmouth, boastful, arrogant speech. Our life is in your hands. Every business dealing we have, every plan and strategy we have is nothing apart from you. So, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We say, as the Lord wills. We'll do this or we'll do that. And may it always be our commitment to you and to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.